Well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 1. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Almighty. You are the Father. You are omnipotent. You are all-powerful, you are all-present, you are all-knowing, you're good, you're kind, you're also just, and you're also holy. And Father, thank you that you have pulled back the curtain that we may see what is coming, how you are going to reward those who love you and who serve you, and you are going to judge those who continue to rebel against you, and you are going to conquer Evil, you're going to remove it once for all. Evil's already conquered. And you're going to remove it once for all. Thank you that you have revealed so much. Help us to, to see you aright this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, we started in chapter 1, and we looked at the introduction of the book. We looked at John's salutation to those, how he is, um, how he's writing, and he is writing specifically to seven churches, seven churches that today would be in modern-day Turkey, in fact, just to, to go there really quickly, um, Modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, in that day would have been what part of the world um, religiously? Who were those people predominantly? Jews or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. And we see that John is to, is to write, and he's going to write, he's going to record and he's, uh, he's going to record those things that he has seen. He's going to record the things that are. And then he's going to record the things that will be after these things. And so chapter 1 is the things that he has seen. So let's get into what he began to see. So chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven golden stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now when this has been happening, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. This is a time of general persecution for the church. We're going to see that uh, later in the letters to the churches where persecution is enough that we're already starting to see martyrs uh, for the faith, where those, there are those who have been killed for the faith. And John is not uh, aloof to this. Notice how he refers to himself, your brother and your fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So he's, he's not just a bystander. He's in the same boat as those to whom he's writing. He understands what it is to be persecuted for his faith. Now, you can go back with John all the way back into the book of Acts and see that, can't you? Right after the resurrection, right after Pentecost, when all of a sudden you start to see persecution of the church, you see Peter and John arrested, and what happened to them? What did the Jews do to them? Peter and John. Oh, yeah, they beat them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so they're no strange. And in fact, now, here's the difference between them and us, frankly, most of the time. They were physically beaten and what was their response to that? They, can, they were joyful considering we're happy because we've been, been considered worthy to suffer as our Lord suffered. So the next time uh, I encounter affliction and opposition, perhaps I should be thinking about that kind of a response. John's no stranger to persecution and to trouble. And we, again, we see a word that shows up. It shows up here, and we're going to see it many times over the next couple of weeks as John is addressing the churches. And it's this word, perseverance. Perseverance is the same word that is used. We also see it translated patience. What is the idea of perseverance? 
not stopping, bearing up under. In fact, that's literally what the word means, right? Hupomeno, to keep your shoulder under, to stay under the load. Andrew? Endurance. What does the word assume? Waiting and difficulty, suffering. It, it, it anticipates that. Look, does anybody have trouble? Do we need any encouragement to persevere under prosperity? I've never, ever heard somebody in, say, you know what, brother, keep your chin up. Things are going absolutely wonderfully and things are just peachy. You don't hear that. You hear that encouragement when things are difficult, when the load is heavy, and the, and the back is bowed. Greg. Oh, yeah. In fact, what, what is uh, one of the words that's used to describe um, how we are to handle the faith? I'm thinking of Jude 3, that you earnestly contend what is, the, do you know what the word is? The Greek word for that is? It's epi-agonizomai. Agony. It's agonized, and the epi in front of it is an intensifier. And so you are to agonize in your defense of the faith once delivered to the saints. This is not something that is uh, lackadaisical. You're not on cruise control. Your foot is in the accelerator because it's anticipated you ain't going downhill. You're going up. And so here again, John is, is no stranger to this. He, and why is he on Patmos? He wasn't sent there for a pleasure cruise. Patmos is a volcanic island. It's about 10 miles long, four to five miles wide. And apparently they did some mining on Patmos. And so John, and, and keep in mind that at this stage, John is in his 80s or 90s. Now, I have to do physical labor from time to time in my work. And I am finding that it is not as easy to do as it was when I was 25, 35, 45, even 55. John is a whole generation ahead of me. He's an old man in a day where there weren't necessarily a lot of old people. And so here he is, exiled to Patmos, and why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's not a rebel rouser. He's not being sent there simply because he's disagreeable. He's being sent there because he is a messenger of Jesus Christ, and he's not silent. And so he is uh, being singled out. He's being intentionally um, put upon without killing him. So he's there on Patmos. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, as John is now encountering these things, 
is he aware of what's going on around him? He's very aware, right? He's talking about things that he hears. He talks about things that he sees. He has conversations. He is, and he is making observations and trying to describe what it is exactly that he is seeing. And so he's using his normal senses, and then he is using words to communicate what it was that he observed through his senses. Now, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he identifies a specific day, right? It's the Lord's day. And he's in the spirit. He is meditating. He is pondering the things of God. And now God's got a message for him, a special one. Does this bring into mind, to your mind, anybody else that we've read of, that you've read of in the Bible that would be like this? Say it louder. I cannot hear you. Daniel. Daniel's one for, uh, he had several visions, right, that are recorded in his book. And you can even, you can go and you can find others. Ezekiel had several visions that were like this, where he was in exile in Babylon, and yet in the spirit, where does he end up? Well, he's back in Jerusalem, and he's having visions of the temple. So John understands that this is a vision that he's having, yet he is also using, able to use his senses in order to observe what it is that he is encountering. And so we see him use descriptive language. So he hears a voice. So what did he hear? A voice. Somebody is speaking. And not only is this person speaking, this person is speaking words, language, that John understands. He's able to understand what is being spoken. Yet, he also describes what the voice is like. And so here we have a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, is that a normal voice? I don't think I've ever had anyone describe my voice like the sound of a trumpet. I've heard it described as the sound of a banging cymbal, but never a trumpet. So why this illusion, illusion with an A, not an I? Why this? We have to go back, remember, think about this, we're, we're, we're tracing threads. All of these threads are being pulled and they're being pulled from somewhere back in the past. And where's the most common place that we're going to find those threads originating? Old Testament. So, what was the trumpet used for in the Old Testament? Yeah. Moses has got, I don't know if Moses carried it himself or if he's got a trumpet bearer to where there's a trumpet here where he can get everyone's attention. 
as Susie was saying, for battle, for gathering together. And so, in fact, the military uses this now, or they have used it in the past now, haven't they? Think back to the Civil War. What's one of the people that was attached to basically to every unit? There's a bugler. And there were certain notes that this guy would play in a certain arrangement in order to communicate a specific message to the people who, heard, who would hear it. And so this is the idea here. It's, it's intended to get John's attention. And he gets John's attention. Well, it's not going to be the same word used because Old Testament is, is Hebrew and this one's Greek. Um, but the idea is, is that it is to get attention. And we are going to see this several times. In fact, uh, when you talk about trumpets now, we've, we've got a link back here to the Old Testament. Are we going to have a link carrying forward inside Revelation when you talk about trumpets? Yes, we do. And in fact, what are we going to find in a, uh, that, that's waiting for us here in a few chapters? Yeah, there are seven judgments that are announced by trumpets. And so, here again, we're pulling through. And this voice gets John's attention. And he receives a command. Write in a book. So John... As you are observing all of these things, you are to be the secretary. You are the one, you write this stuff down because it's not just for you. It is going to be for seven churches and ultimately for us. So write these things down. So, John, you need to pay attention and you need to be accurate. You need to use your senses so that you can record what you see, what you hear. So write it down, write down what you see, and send it to the seven churches. And, we, and he lists them out. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All seven of these are uh, basically in a semicircle in modern-day Turkey. And I think we talked about last week how uh, there were seven basic postal regions, for lack of a better term, in Turkey. And these seven cities were big cities. These churches are in seven major cities in, that are spread out in these areas. So the idea is, is that this is for being able to disseminate information. You get it here, and it can go to the rest of the region. I suppose we can stop here for a moment and talk about the churches. We'll talk about this, I think, a little more in the next couple of weeks. There are some who have taken these churches and tried to use them as these seven churches represent the panorama of church history. And... Um, you would find that Ephesus is talking about the early church and then you've got Smyrna and you've got these going along and usually the way it would uh, play out, Philadelphia was the first part of the 20th century because there was uh, actually the 18th 
excuse me, the 19th and 20th centuries because you had such an explosion in missions. And so that was the idea that was behind the Church of Philadelphia. And then Laodicea was the churches that began to um, go off and fall off the rails. Now, the difficulty with having that particular interpretation is that you are going back and you're trying to read this into history. And frankly, there are a number of difficulties that occur. In the early church, in the first century, were there issues with doctrinal purity? In fact, the first uh, church that's listed here, Ephesus, in the first century, did they have problems with doctrinal purity? Yeah, they did. We just got done studying the pastorals. And Paul's going on and on with Timothy. You confront this false teaching. You, um, a verse that you, know, you may run into next week. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in so doing, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Timothy, hold to the truth because there are those in Ephesus who are not holding to the truth. So all of these things are being experienced in the first century simultaneously. So the better way to look at, at what we're going to see with the churches, these are seven states of a church. And they can change. As we talk about Ephesus, as to what Tim, Paul was encouraging, he's admonishing Timothy, and he's on Timothy like white on rice, just constantly banging this drum about sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound words. When we get to Ephesus in chapter 2 next week, what are we going to find? Are they doctrinally sound? Yes. So in other words, Timothy was successful in his mission. So you had a church that was having doctrinal issues, and yet here we are down the road some years, and they don't have that problem anymore. They have a new problem. So the point is, is that you can have the same church that all of a sudden has different issues. Think that can happen here? What often happens with churches as years go by, you have a first generation, right? And I look around in this room and I see people who were here for the first generation when this church was being established and, and the difficulties that are often encountered when you are the pioneers. Then that leadership goes out, new leadership comes in. You have a second generation. And usually a second generation, well, they, they have some memories because they were around with the old timers. Sorry to use that term for you folks because some of you aren't necessarily that, well, okay, maybe you are. <laughs> but the point being is that you have people who had a connection with the originals. 
And so, and by the way, we see that often in the Old Testament, don't we? Joshua, as long as Joshua was alive and the elders that served with Joshua, as long as they were alive, the wheel stayed on the cart. But all of a sudden, Joshua's gone. And that next generation, those that labored with him now, they're gone. And what happened to the people? Yeah, there's, I like the, I like the uh, visual imagery there, Andrew. The spiral. They're off the, tra- they're off the, the track right? Third generation churches, yeah, once you start getting 40 years down the road, all of a sudden, you've got people around who weren't around for the early days. They weren't there for a lot of the struggles. They don't have appreciation for what was done in order to build a particular local assembly. And so all of a sudden now you start getting that far down the road and you've got, it's easy to start falling off and getting off track. And so it's best to see that these churches are seven different places, seven different stages where a local assembly can be. And no, we're not exempt from that. Uh, I can tell you the pastors here are very aware of that particular hazard. So, this loud voice gets John's attention. There's a lot of references in the book of Revelation to loud voices. Where... This is designed to get someone's attention. And again, since I've got a microphone on, I'm very reluctant to yell. I know some of you might appreciate it because it's not as easy to hear as it once was, but there's a lot of other people in here who are not going to be happy with that. But the idea here is the loud voice is designed so that John hears or whoever the audience is because it's not always John that's being subjected to this loud voice. This isn't being done in secret. This isn't being done to be hidden. These things that are recorded are being done so that they become known, that they're being manifested so that John would understand, so that we will understand what was going on. Sam's, okay, I thought I saw the wheels turning. He's commanded to write 12 times in this book where it's, you know, so John, just so we don't forget, write this down. Write this one down. Specifically, John, you make sure you get this 12 times. Once, he is specifically commanded not to write. He hears something. Seven peals of thunder. And he was about to write, and he was told, don't write that down. So, God's not disclosing absolutely everything. 
but he's disclosing what it is that he wants us to understand. Now let's go there for just a moment. There's a verse that you often hear referred to to deal with those things that we aren't supposed to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? The secret things belong to the Lord. Now is that true? That is absolutely true. Is that the end of the verse? No, it's not. What's the rest of the verse? The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may obey the words of this law. So, what God does reveal, we are responsible for and we are accountable for. So these things that God does when he pulls back the curtain so that we can see these things, we're to understand those things, we are to know them, and we are to, to make those applicable to everyday life. So he's to write what he sees and then send it to the churches. So, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Now, again, what was the command? Write what you see. So, John hears, and he turns. It's behind him. Can't see what's behind him. So, he turns to see. So, again, he is being faithful in carrying out his command, and he is trying to gather what all he needs in order that he can write it and send it to the intended audience. And immediately now, we start running into symbols. He turns to see the voice, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest. He describes who he's seeing, and in his right hand, he has seven stars, and out of his mouth, there's a sharp two-edged sword, and his face like the sun shining in his strength. So we've got lampstands, we've got a weird-looking guy, and we have seven stars being held in his right hand. We're running into symbols. Now, when we hit symbols in the book of Revelation, again, go back to hermeneutics. How do we deal with symbols? What do we look for? How do we interpret them? How do you interpret anything scripturally to understand it? Context. So one of the things that we're going to find here in Revelation is often when we see something that is obviously intended to carry a message, in the near context, we're going to find an explanation as to what it is that we're seeing. And if we don't have it explained in the immediate context, very often we're going to find that there is an extended context. We've seen something like this before, someplace else in Scripture. So, let's deal with the lampstands. What are the lampstands? And how do we know what they are and what they represent? First of all, is it a lampstand? It's a lampstand. 
What makes it a symbol? Okay, it's a lampstand, but it represents something. All right, that's what a symbol does. It represents something. It's using a, a known item, but it is representing something else. And what it, that is that's representing, that's what we need, you know, what's the explanation to that? So we have seven lampstands. Now later here, jump down a few verses, and what do we find in verse 20? As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Why does he refer to it as a mystery? Okay, John doesn't know what it is, and it is a mystery until the meaning is revealed. Now again, remember, scripturally, scripturally, biblically, in the New Testament, when we see this word mysterion, mystery, it's a transliteration, when we see that word, what's it getting at? What's a mystery biblically? Is it Agatha Christie? Okay, hidden truth. Who said that? There you go. Something that has previously been hidden that is now being disclosed. That's what a mystery is. So, for instance, when you see um, Paul write about the mystery of the church, you have something, it was previously hidden how just how extensively the Gentiles would be involved in salvation and redemption. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is referred to as a mystery. You see it alluded to, and, be, and because we live in the day and time in which we live, we can look back at Isaiah 53, and, and who do we see? You see Jesus. Could you see Jesus and understand him as Jesus prior to his incarnation? No. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. Philip shows up. What's his question to Philip? Is this man referring to himself or does he refer to another? He's reading it and he's trying to make sense of it. There were a lot of people looking at Isaiah 53 and trying to, who is this? And so again, mysteries are previously hidden, now being disclosed. So, John turns around, he sees seven lampstands, and here's this guy, and he's got seven stars in his right hand. And immediately John's going, okay, I know I see lampstands, I see stars, I have no clue what they mean. And so it's explained to him. It's given to him. This is what it represents. And in fact, the seven lampstands, 
those are seven churches, and not just any seven churches. It's the seven churches that you're writing these things down to and sending this to. As we go through the churches, in fact, I would encourage you, I hope that you're reading this during the week. As you read through Revelation 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches, look, in fact, we'll just jump ahead. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. What's he referring to? This is referring to the this is referring to what John just got done seeing. Most of the introductions to the letters to these seven churches are going to draw immediately back to this context. And so when John is writing these things, there are again there are threads that are going through to the actual individual churches. So, the seven lampstands those are seven particular churches. The seven stars, well, those are the angels of those churches, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. Turn in your Bibles. Let's flip back. Keep your finger in Revelation because we'll go back there quickly. And go back to Daniel chapter 10. Because you'll notice in what we've read, it is explained to John what the lampstands represent. It's explained to John what the stars in this fellow's right hand represent. But notice that there's no explanation as to the appearance of the man. There's no explanation given. Why is there no explanation given? John needs help understanding what the lampstands are. He needs help understanding what the stars are. Does he need help understanding the appearance of this man? No, he doesn't. Why not? Well, he sees him well enough to be able to give that kind of a description of him. All right? He doesn't need to get to... to he's, we've seen this guy before. So when we go to Daniel chapter 10, oh, we'll start in verse 2. In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a tumult." Does that sound familiar? Because when you flip back over to Revelation, he looks and he sees, I saw one like a son of man, 
clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, once upon a time in my life, in my professional life, I used to put together what would be called a lineup. And you take a, you get a lineup and you take, you have a picture of the individual that you're hoping somebody's going to be able to pull out and identify, and then you put together five other people who look similar to that individual. We've just been given a verbal lineup. So the guy in Revelation, is he the same guy that we see in Daniel? Boy, sure sounds like him. In fact, the only thing that the guy in Daniel doesn't have is what? He doesn't have the sword coming out of his mouth. That's the only distinct difference. I suppose it could be termed as plagiarism. Um, people who don't have faith, who don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, can't understand what they're reading, especially in something like this. They may be able to tie, they may be able to connect dots, but they don't understand what the dots mean. And so, um, is it viewed as something other than the miraculous that it is? Absolutely. That's why Daniel is dated by so many uh, as being written in the first or second century B.C. And they put it there because the prophecy in Daniel 10 to 12 is so precise, dealing with multiple individuals over decades and centuries of time that they say it had to be written after the fact. You can go through Daniel 10 to 11, 10, 11, and 12, and you can attach names because of history. You can attach names to people who are referred to in that prophecy that, was, that actually occurred back in the 6th century B.C., several hundred years before they occurred. You remember Thomas Jefferson, right? He takes, a, he takes a razor and he cuts out anything in the Bible that smacks of supernaturalism or miracles because obviously those things can't happen, right? We live in the age of reason. Those things cannot happen. And so um, that, that, that's the response of natural man to most of us. It can't be true. We don't understand it. Nobody could possibly know something like that. And so somehow there's got to be some other connection. There's got to be some other explanation. Yeah. 
what, how, what's John's response to what he sees? Now, I want you to imagine something for a moment. You're seeing a vision. And you see a man dressed as this man is with the physical appearance that this man has. I think I might be a little wigged out if I'm looking at a guy and I see flames coming out of his eye holes. Okay? That would get my attention. That is a normal, that's a normal response to an angel, much less the Son of God. And so John, he sees this and boom, he's down. I am in the presence of somebody. And, and again, John is well versed enough in the scriptures. He, do you think John's thinking of Daniel 10? as he's seeing this guy, oh yeah, oh yeah. He knows who he's looking at. And he's on his face immediately. I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me. When you think of the Apostle John, what's one of the pictures that comes to your mind specifically regarding him and Jesus? He's the disciple that Jesus loved. And in fact, at, that, at the Last Supper, where's John? Yeah, he's the one that's right next to Jesus. And so Jesus reaches down, touches him. And says, don't be afraid. And now he starts using language that is so rich. Yeah, the yeah, he never yeah, John never refers to himself by name in, in his gospel, right? It's always the disciple who Jesus loved. And he's told, I am the first and the last. Now, the first and the last, that goes back to Isaiah. And those were words that were spoken by God. And so when he says, I am the first and the last, <laughs> who's he proclaiming himself to be? I'm God. God in the flesh. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. Oh, again, going back to the Old Testament, the I am. That was God's covenant name with Israel. Remember when Moses said, you know, hey, I, I 
why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Why are the people of Israel going to listen to me? Who should I say sent me? And tell them the I am sent you. You'll see the first and the last reference to Isaiah 41.4, 44.6, You'll see God referring to himself as the living God. Joshua 3.10, 1 Samuel 17.26, Psalm 84.2. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. And I was dead. Literally, I became And behold, there's that word again. So let this get your attention. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. And I was thinking about this keys thing this morning. What is a have in my hand a closed padlock that is on a gate. The gate is locked shut. Who has power? Me or the lock? I don't have the key. The lock has power over me. If I don't have the key, the lock has power over me. Every one of us, we all know this. I'd love to be able to do this. Hang on a second. But you in the back, you're not going to be able to see this. I love these switchblade keys. I love these things. I'm not sure why I get so much entertainment out of them. Simple mind, I guess. So, anybody in this room can walk out to the big white van that's out there. It's locked. Any of you able to get in? I can. Any of you able to start the car? I know you can hotwire it. But can you start it in the normal fashion? No. I can because I've got the key. He who has the key has the control. Jesus has the key of death, and he has the key of Hades. Now, why those two? We're going to get there right here, because that's actually, that's, that's the question. Why death and Hades? First of all, what's Hades? Okay, it's the place of the dead. Okay, so Hades has the, the, the context of judgment, right? In fact, later in the book, we are going to see where there is going to be a place called the Lake of Fire. And what is thrown into the lake of fire? Hades is. 
So Hades is a temporary holding cell. That's, that's, that's talking about judgment. What is death? That's judgment. Do you and I die? This is an interesting question. Okay, that that that's 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 a good point, but it does not answer my question. Do we die? Go ahead. That's okay. You're 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 on the right track, bud. Look, Jesus at Na- at Lazarus's tomb. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And those who live and believe in me shall never die. So, do our bodies die? Yes. And you know what? I'm grateful they do. I get my newer model. Yeah. There is a sting of death. And death happens to who? Say it louder. Everyone. It is appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment. Do you recall a time when uh, Jesus referred uh, referred to, I am the God of the living and the God of the dead? Actually, I'm not the God. I'm the God of the living. So the point here being, Jesus has got control and power, both of the condition of death and the place. He's got control over the whole kit and caboodle. Now, let's let's keep going. Because he has power over life, death, and judgment. And again, this idea here of death and of Hades, this, 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 he, he's painting, he's painting a picture. This is about judgment. Because most of the rest of the book is about judgment. And how that judgment is going to be carried out. Now, for you and I, as we run into that, the idea of judgment, is that something for us to fear? We're in Christ. So what does that mean? Do I have to fear this? No. No. I don't have to fear the wrath of God. 
the wrath of God on my behalf has been satisfied by the man who's speaking. Those who continue to rebel, should they be fearful? Yeah, they should. Forget COVID. You fear him who has the power to kill the body and the soul and to cast it into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So the context here is judgment. Verse 19, therefore, because that is true, write the things which you have seen and the things that are and the things which will take place after these things. So, we've got a couple of minutes left. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. So, who are the stars? Are they angels, as in holy angels, or are they people? And here's where things can get a little, here's one place where things can get a little interesting. Paul was an angel. Did you know that? Paul referred to himself as an angel. Galatians. Because an angel, the primary context of an angel is a messenger. Paul referred to the thorn, his thorn in the flesh as an angel. A messenger of Satan to torment me. So the term can apply to both the spiritual being and to people. Same word, the same word. And so, in fact, seven times out of 176 in the New Testament, you can say conclusively that they're talking about a person. So, the word can be used either way. The idea of, a, of an angel is primarily that they are a messenger. Now, when you're talking about a holy angel, then you're also talking about one who is a servant of God and who carries out tasks on behalf of God. Have you ever found it interesting that when you talk about angels, that you see them so prevalent in the Gospels during Jesus' lifetime and surrounding his birth and his life, and you see them referred to so prominently in the book of Revelation. There are times when they kind of start coming out of the woodwork. In the book of Revelation, we're going to see angels who have got specific jobs. And in fact, we might even be able to say that there are angels. You know, you, you talk about every once in a while, you know what, you only had one job, right? There are angels that way. They have one purpose. 
for a specific moment in time. So, is it referring to, uh, by the way, is there such a thing as a guardian angel? Do you have a guardian angel? Where do you get that scripturally, the idea? Pardon me? The angel of yeah, Psalm 34, 34 or 37. Fear him and love him. I know it's in the Bible story book that we've read so many times. Show them behold the face of their angels. How about Peter? Remember when Peter was in prison? He gets miraculously released and he comes over and he's banging on the door and Rhoda the servant girl comes down and sees him and she's, she's so excited she doesn't bother letting him in. She runs upstairs, hey, 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 Peter's standing outside. Peter is standing in the street outside while they're having a prayer meeting about his release, right? And what do they tell Rhoda? You're hallucinating. You've been having a little bit too much of that grape stuff. Or you're seeing his angel. You're not seeing Peter. You're seeing his angel. Now they withdrew that one very quickly when they went downstairs and saw that it was in fact Peter standing out in the street, you know, Are you guys ever going to let me in here? While you're praying for me, can you unlock the door? I think the best sense here for, for understanding this is that the seven stars are the pastors for these churches. There's no need, I don't, I, and, and the reason for coming to that conclusion, to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write. You don't need to write the letter to a holy angel for the church. You don't need to do that. God doesn't need to do that. So I think the best way to understand this here is that the stars are the pastors for these churches. And so as these letters are being written, they're being written to the leadership in these churches. Questions? See, I always like asking that question at five after. <laughs> now y'all have been asking plenty during. All right, next week, we'll start jumping into the churches. Lord Jesus, Thank you that you were the one who was dead. Your death satisfied the wrath of God that was due to me, due to us. And thank you even more that you are the one who is alive forevermore and you have the keys of death and hell and Hades. You are the one who is all-powerful. You are the only one worthy of worship. Oh, please forgive us for ascribing value to things that don't matter. You are the one who is worthy of everything. You're worthy of our total adoration, our total devotion, our total obedience, our total joy. came so that you could give us life 
both eternal in, in length, but also full in abundance in quality. Thank you that you have revealed so much. Lord, help us to, to see you, that we may know you aright, that we may worship you aright. Help us to do that in this coming service, that we would glory in you. In Jesus' name.